You're now listening to the Bar Stars Podcast, where we explore health, longevity, and performance. I'm your host, Edward Checo, and we'll be diving deeper into topics I've been studying for the last 10 years as a catastatics expert. Today, we have a special guest, Dr. Joel Furman. Dr. Joel Furman, MD, is a board-certified family doctor, six-time New York Times bestselling author. He is the president of the Nutritional Research Foundation and on the faculty of the Northern Arizona University Health Sciences Division. Dr. Furman coined the term nutritarian to describe a nutrient-dense eating style designed to prevent cancer, slow aging, and extend lifespan. In addition to the Dr. Furman Wellness Center in New Jersey, Dr. Furman also operates his Eat to Live Retreat in San Diego, where overweight people from all over the world come to stay for 4 to 12 weeks to conquer food addiction and recover their health. Dr. Furman is also a former world-class figure skater. In this episode, we discuss, is the vegan diet optimal for everyone? Who should have animal products? What he thinks is about the movie Game Changers and why what the athletes were eating in that movie was unhealthy? How he improved famous NBA player Alonzo Mourning's kidney disease? And should we be consuming red wine, coffee, or olive oil? All right, tune in. Welcome, Dr. Furman. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you for coming. Let us know a little bit about your retreat. Oh, well, it's really exciting for me because, you know, I've been in practice now more than 30 years. And you always see those people who just know they got to change their life and get healthy. And they can't do it on their own. So I wanted to have a place where, where those people who couldn't do it by themselves could come and really um, totally get well. So they stay there and they're getting, you know, counseling cooking classes, lectures, and they're in a safe environment where they're not tempted by their illicit love affair with the addictive nature of processed foods, and they're eating, learning how to make healthy food taste great. They may drop, you know, um, 30 pounds a month, or 30 pounds the first month, or they may drop 50, you know, 20 pounds the first month, and 10 pounds the second month, whatever it is they're losing. They learn how to continue the process when they go home, and they've retrained their taste buds, they reach, they've lost their addictive love affair with those foods, they're no longer a calorie-consuming monster, you know, food is powerfully addicting. And there's a period of time, just like drug addiction, where we're staying away from alcohol and drugs for a long period of time, makes you able to sustain that lifestyle, and which you can't do it on your own unless you have that period of enforced abstinence. So for these people who have problems with that, it's been life-saving. And I've said people would come and get rid of their diabetes, recover from autoimmune conditions like lupus and psoriasis and rheumatoid arthritis, and even get better from asthma, fibromyalgia, chronic headaches, and heart disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, and we're talking about not improving, we're talking about resolving these conditions. So they go home without diabetes on no medications if they're a type 2 diabetic. They don't need medications to lower blood pressure anymore. The blood pressure is normalized. They don't need medications sometimes they're getting off their asthma inhalers and their, their skin is clearing from psoriasis and we can discontinue those medications that they're on. So it really is um, tr life transformational for these people. What's the experience like for someone who stays at the retreat? Well... It's a gorgeous place. We have a sand volleyball court. And I'm not saying people playing sand volleyball, but it's nice they can walk on the sand and exercise on the sand. We have um, a trainer, a physical trainer there doing some exercise classes adjusted to their particular needs, mostly for balance. And, um, and we have a, you know, a saltwater pool and a swirl pool and a hiking trails. And it's just in a beautiful rural area. With, and, um, so they're, and they have a nurse on the premises and there's three chefs that are fantastic. And you, people should come there just to taste the food. And we grow most of our, a lot of our own food there with like um, organic gardens and, you know, 60 fruit, exotic fruit trees and things. So the, so the food's spectacular. And then people learn a tremendous amount. But they also have free time where they can, a lot of people are still doing their work on their computers from home part of the day because they still have to make a living while they're there. But they, they're spending time there. And I'm there a lot, you know, so I take in every patient. It's like, it's like somebody comes to see me as a new patient for, a, for an hour 
where they come to see me for a new patient and they stay for two or three months, not just for the hour visit, so I can really make sure that I get them on the right track, you know? Yeah. And uh, tell us about your new book, E for Life. Thank you. Well, and my new book is coming out in early part of 2020, and it's really super exciting because it's my 12th book. <laughs> you know, I'm considering this my last book, my most complete book. So people say to me, well, you've written 12 books, one on diabetes, one for reversing heart disease, one for preventing cancer, one for this, one for that. But what if there was one book you would recommend that encompasses everything in the most comprehensive overview of all the modern science? And, the, you know, and that's the book I wanted to finish with, the book with the most comprehensive overview full of, you know, incredible recipes, but really going into the detail of how these phytonutrients from plants are able to activate immune function to prevent cancer and let people know that we've landed the man on the moon already. What I mean by that is we already can, we already have the information right now at hand to win the war on cancer and prevent dementia and allow people to live longer and in great health, but nobody's taking advantage of the information. The first step is to know the information, see the degree of scientific support and integrity for that information. Then see the obstacles of which why it makes it difficult for people to change. And then, of course, learn how to apply it, make it taste great so it becomes the way you prefer to eat and love to eat. And then we have a, a win-win where people are saying, oh, give me a break. I'd rather shoot myself right now and die if I have to eat that way to look for great health. You know? And I'm showing them, no, it's not the way it's going to be. You're going to love eating this way. Take some time for your taste buds to get stronger and your health to get there. But if you do it, you're going to love it, and the rewards are incredibly worth it. And I'm saying right now is that eating a nutritarian diet is a hundred times more protective than drugs that lower cholesterol and lower blood pressure to prevent against future heart attacks and stroke. And these diseases that afflict Americans don't have to happen. We have the science available today, so you don't have to have a heart attack, you don't have to have a stroke, you don't have to have diabetes, you can reverse it. If you have these diseases, you can reverse them. They're not fixed. And this explosion of autoimmune conditions and cancers are related to each other. An explosion of people getting lupus and psoriasis and rheumatoid arthritis and scleroderma and Sjogren's syndrome and inflammatory bowel disease and all these problems. And we can get these people well. What so, percentages of disease do you say are diet related? 99% of cardiovascular deaths are, are diet related. Of course, there's some genetic defects to the heart and some, um, maybe there's some people that have had that, um, you know, old, old bacteria that causes rheumatic heart disease from stress. In other words, there's rare, very rarely it's not diet related. Um, cancers, we're probably saying about 90, most common cancers are at least 90% diet related because we know, for example, look at breast cancer. Early population studies before 1950s in more primitive or countries that had more um, basic natural diets had between 1 50th and 100th the amount of breast cancer we see in this country today. And the and rates went up 400% in the last, you know, in the last 50 years even. The point is, is that a lot of these populations that had no breast cancer, when they moved to America, they started getting breast cancer, these same populations. It wasn't genetically determined. Um, and we have studies now, and we're saying that, for example, if we look at studies with people who have breast cancer, and we give them flax seeds or onions or mushrooms or walnuts, things like that. We, for, for example, one study on lignans showed that these women who had breast cancer reduced the risk of dying over that 10-year period by 71% with a higher intake of lignans from seeds. In other words, I'm saying the same foods that are shown to protect against cancer are shown to enhance lifespan and prevent recurrence in people who have cancer. So that, not saying all these cancers are reversible, obviously as you get to a later stage it becomes more irreversible, but certainly preventing cancer, the earlier you start in life with the right foods, the more protective and the more um, profound benefits are going to be. If you're asking me the question, what if the whole population 
ate a nutritarian diet from birth till, you know, till death, not as starting a diet when they're 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 years old, but start the diet when they were young, then I'd say, yeah, we might bite almost more like 95% of cancers or more if people ate that healthy from birth. Because we didn't see these cancers years ago. They don't, you know, they don't occur in wild animals eating their natural diets. And we have the science available today to show how we can strengthen the body's immune system against cancer. And I'm saying right now, that these are not primarily genetic diseases, they're not diseases of, nutri- they're diseases of nutritional stupidity. And even the high intake of cruciferous vegetables, for example, has been shown to suppress the genetic alterations that lead to breast cancer, like the BRCA1 gene and the GSTP1 gene are suppressed by the high intake of green vegetables. So we were able to moderate our, even when we have increased genetic risk. Is the nutritarian diet a vegan diet? It, we advocate a diet near vegan or vegan, but so if you're using animal products, certainly 5% or less is recommended, and 10% or less is strongly recommended. I could say that 5% or less animal products is probably ideal. And then you probably, if you have good genetics and some, you know, a lot of the blue zones around the world, we have the longest of populations, eat diets of up to 10% of calories from animal products, but no blue zone and long, long, no long-lived population ever consume more than 10% of calories from animal products. Because as you do so, then you're removing the phytonutrients from the plants and you're pushing up an hormone IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor 1, a growth hormone, too high. And those growth hormones permissively promote angiogenesis and allow tumors to grow on the body. You know, the question is, is a vegan diet more lifespan-promoting than one that that uses a little bit of animal products? Maybe one serving a week or so, you know? And those are difficult questions to answer. In the Adventist Health Study 2, they tried to answer the question. They they compared people eating one or two servings of animal products a week compared to none. And they did found that those with none had a lower incidence of cardiovascular death. The overall risk of cancer death wasn't much difference between one and zero, but in cardiovascular death, it was a little improved with a zero. Of course, these are people who aren't eating that way from birth anyway, most, in most cases. So it's hard to know for sure. But in generally, I, I recommend if you want to use animal products, use it as a condiment. We give people suggestions for cooking with very little animal products in them. Like, for example, I was on Kelly and Michael when, when Michael Strahan was with Kelly um, on their television show. And I, I was on the show making a bean burger with mushrooms in it and beans in it and an onion in it and everything. And Michael said... Um, I don't want a bean burger. I'm a meat guy. So I said, well, Michael, how about we just put an ounce of meat in an eight-ounce burger? I'll just give you a little flavor of that, and I'll put in some of these. these um, I'll take some tofu that I'll freeze, and I'll, and I'll crumble it in there so it gives like the feel of meat, and the meal suck up the flavor of the little bit of meat I'm putting in there. So I made this burger, this mushroom burger with onion. I gave it to him. He said, wow, that's the best burger I ever tasted in my life. That's like better tasting than a meat burger. So I was showing him how you could use a little bit of animal product and still get that flavor. What was the animal still, product in that one? I don't remember. I don't you know. Some natural, um, some, you know, some type of natural, substance, meat-flavored substance, meat, meat, some natural meat I added for him to show him you can make a veggie burger with a little touch of meat and it still tastes very meaty. You know yeah. What I mean? yeah, I had some very delicious vegan burgers before. Yeah, there's some pretty good ones out there. But I'm, of course, you know, still an advocate of eating G-bombs, right? G-B-O-M-B-S and getting your intake of all those, that full portfolio of those powerful anti-cancer foods and not eating the processed vegan foods and the processed fake vegan burgers, you know what I mean? For those not familiar with uh, G-bombs, it's uh, dark leafy greens, Berries, onions, mushrooms, uh, beans, right? Yes, but not in that order. Let me say it in my order. Uh. Greens, beans, onions, mushrooms, berries, and seeds. Greens, beans, onions, mushrooms, berries, and seeds. Just to help people memorize, get it right in their brain, the most powerful anti-cancer foods they're supposed to be eating every single day. Did you have your cooked mushrooms today? Did you have a big salad with some cruciferous greens on top? Did you have some serving of nuts and seeds today? Did you have something with beans in it today? You know, so we're, I want people to eat these foods. Did you have some berries today or something like a berry, like pomegranate or kumquat, or did you have something else that's rich in low sugar fruit? Did you? Because, you know, we see that as you eliminate one portion of the anti-cancer portfolio, we don't see populations live as long as have low rates of cancer. What I'm saying right now is that even though vegetables, 
are the most powerful food to protect against cancer, right? We still see that diets with vegetables without fruit, people don't live as long as people who are eating fruits and vegetables. A lot of plant foods is healthy, but you take nuts and seeds out of the diet and people don't live as long. They don't have, they have a higher mortality and 40% overall on average, 40% increased risk of cardiovascular mortality, 27% increase of total mortality, just from removing that group of the food from the diet. You take the beans out of the diet, and we see shortened lifespan. You take the vegetables, the greens out of the diet. So anytime you remove one of those food groups, these G-bombs out of the diet, we see studies showing not as great longevity benefits. So everyone should have G-bombs every single day? You know, Maybe I say gene bombs almost every single day. I don't care if I miss a day of mushrooms or I miss a day of be- miss a day one day a week or two days a week, but I'm trying to have those foods as much as I can. What do you tell people that don't like mushrooms? I know it's a, it's a very unpopular food. You're kidding me. It's like so incredibly delicious to make these recipes. I got to try some of my incredible recipes. But you know, I tell them. I do tell you have them, a cookbook? Yeah, I do. Eat to Live Cookbook. I have, I have a few cookbooks. I have Eat to Live Cookbook and I have Eat to Live Quick and Easy Cookbook. And all my books have a lot of recipes in them. Some of my books have like more than 100 recipes. And well, you can find them on your website, right? Yeah, but I have more than 1,700 recipes on my website, 1,700. But my new book coming out, Eat for Life, has some of my favorite, more than 100 of really phenomenal recipes too. Um, and then and the recipes in my members, and they're rated by the members. So you see like, oh, that recipe got four stars. That recipe got five stars. We're watching Netflix and see how many stars it got. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Watch that movie, you know, so you can try that recipe. And one, and we like, of course, give people great sa- healthy salad dressings to make a salad dressing recipe. So we want people to eat a salad every day. One of my mantras is have a salad at least once a day. The salad is the main dish is the mantra. The salad is the main dish. Have one, at least a day, one, a big raw salad every single day. And then put on it one of those healthy dressings, not like an oil and vinegar base, but a, like so there's nuts and seeds blended in with the tomato sauce and the roasted garlic and the almonds and the black fig vinegar or the or, or make an orange sesame. One of my favorite dressings is the orange sesame or take navel oranges with toasted sesame seeds, some cashews, some hemp seeds, blood orange vinegar, or squeeze a lemon, mix that in with the salad, maybe with some kiwi or pomegranate in there. The point is, is that we're making the dressings so healthy. So the dressings themselves, you can eat them with a spoon as a health food. So the dressings are healthy. That's the secret, not just yeah, pouring on most, dressing. most dressings you find in store are not healthy. Yeah, you're putting, they're pouring like 400 calories of unhealthy dressing on a 35 calories of vegetables. Yeah. Telling people then just drink the dressing straight from the bottle and forget the salad if you can do that. <laughs> so for yourself, do you eat any animal products or no? Not really. It's not that I haven't on a rare occasion, but I don't eat them regularly. You read the Adventist study, correct? Yeah, sure. I'm, I've, I've written, like most of my books have more than 500, like my newest book probably has more than 2,000 medical references. So that's my job to read these studies and go through them in detail. Yeah, I always think that's so important when you're able to reference the, yeah, sure. the work. So when people come and read my stuff, they can say, okay, when he's talking about flax seeds or this, or here's the studies on it, I can go look up those studies and see what the study says. I can corroborate what he's saying has, um, is, has act, yeah. is accurate. You know what I, mean? I believe in that fully. Yeah. Uh, in the Adventist study, the pescatarians lived the longest. Am I correct? Or No. It, they, were in the, they had a 5.7-year arm comparing pesco-vegetarian, pesco-vegans compared to regular vegans. In other words, the group that they defined as, as pesco-vegetarians were people who had fish at least once a month and compared to vegans that didn't have it once a month. The differences in prostate cancer were better in the vegans. The differences in colon cancer were better in pesco-vegetarians. And the difference in diabetes was better in the vegans and the difference in the other, you know, so it varied based on what disease you looked at. Overall, I think that they were, it only studied them for 5.7 years. So I think that they, it wasn't a long enough period of time to get definitive differences. But I do think there might've been some overall slight differences that were not that significant between the two groups. But I'm thinking that the advantage of the having a small amount of fish is that the vegan diet it could be deficient in some people for a omega-3 fatty acid, I mean, primarily DHA, which is what your brain is like 40% of DHA. So the exposure to DHA with a little bit of fish 
might add an advan- advantage for some particular diseases as to why the fish consuming population did better in some instances. The cautionary message is that if you eat too much fish and your level of choline intake gets too high, then you produce an excess amount of TMAO, which is trimethylamine oxide, which is an inflammatory substance that can promote cardiovascular disease and even dementia. So, which, so, so even in the Seventh-day Adventist study, those fish-eating people weren't eating a whole lot of fish. It was roughly once serving a month? Well, it was at least one serving a month. They didn't have an upper limit, but was thinking that those people were probably eating it on the average of one serving a week. You know what I mean? Yeah. And not people eating fish every day. Yeah. They were people eating one or two servings most of the week. Because the Seventh-day Adventists as a whole don't eat a lot of animal products. When they eat animal products, they usually eat in small amounts. Would you say it's, it's uh, possible to get all your nutritional requirements, uh, with the exception of B12, on a vegan diet? Probably. Except we're talking here about a limited conversion of EAALA from seeds into DHA in some people genetically. So that, you know, we see a lot of increase. I've seen, you would expect a person following such a healthy vegan diet who's not getting heart disease with lower rates of cancer to have lower rates of dementia. But they have, their rates of dementia might be a little bit better than the average standard American diet, but not almost, but not going away to the, as low as we should see that. And a lot of famous vegans and healthy vegans eaters still got neurologic issues later in life like dementia or Parkinson's. So my 30 years of experience caring for these people um, make it highly suspect that the vegan diet doesn't give optimal amounts of DHA for most people to convert to the optimal levels for their brain function later on in life when most of these problems start to show themselves. So I do recommend that vegans take a conservative dose of a vegan DHA to give people that benefit they would have gotten had they been eating an omega-3 fatty acid from fish. And the vegan DHA is made from uh, algae? Algae, that's correct. Now, we're talking here about also that zinc absorption goes down with aging. And even though you absorb about 20% of the zinc from plant foods compared to 80% from animal products, and even though um, most vegans have adequate amounts of zinc, we see that zinc absorption goes down with aging. And we also have studies that show that with zinc supplementation, you have low risk of pneumonia in later life as your immune system dwindles dwindles down and risk of infection increases. So I I think it's, it's suspect it's probably beneficial for longevity to take a zinc supplement as we age as well. So what would be your complete uh, supplement list for a, a full practicing vegan? And by the way, I have a supplement that was made for those vegans. So it has, the, it has about 75 micrograms of B12 in it, has about 2,000 of D in it because people aren't in the sun anymore, you know. Could, yeah. You know. But, it's not, but the D isn't there because you're a vegan. The D's there because you're not in the sun. Most people, yeah. Yeah, most people. It's not I, I supplement vitamin D. Yeah, it's not because you're a vegan. It's just preventing, preventing deficiencies in people who don't have enough, high enough vitamin D level. Yeah. So we're talking about re-adding some things that a vegan diet doesn't have, like K2 and iodine. And if you're not salting your food with iodine, eating salt or eating seaweed. So it's the, iodine, the 150 micrograms of iodine, the 75 micrograms of B12, the 2,000 of vitamin D, and a little bit of D, and about 250 of EPA and DHA. Of course, also, the most important thing about the supplement I want to leave with is that it's what's in conventional supplements that cause cancer that I object to. It's the folic acid, the vitamin A, the beta carotene, and the and the and the irons and cases and the vitamin E, isolated nutrients that are made from petroleum, particularly folic acid. I'm saying right now that the studies show, lots of studies show that the conventional supplements, even fortified nutritional yeast with folic acid, the people are just bombing folic acid into their body. And it's, an, it's a pro, it, it goes, comes in excessively. It promotes cellular replication and it increases risk of common cancers like colon cancer, prostate cancer, and breast cancer. So I'm know very I- concerned about people not taking folic acid containing supplements. I want them not to take folic acid containing supplements. I know a lot of doctors recommend folic acid for pregnant women. Yes, I'm very against that. Okay. Because I think that when you eat a healthy diet with greens and beans, getting tons of folic acid, nutritarians have very high levels of folate in their bloodstream. They don't need a supplement with folic acid. It's because people eating processed foods and animal products, 
and not enough vegetables, so their diets are folate deficient. So instead of telling them to make a folate sufficient diet, they give them a pill, which is an enabler to enable them to get along without having to think about eating vegetables now for their folate. And you know what? Not only increasing the risk of breast cancer in the child and the mother, but studies show that women who don't eat vegetables have kids with a higher rate of brain cancers and autoimmune conditions and other problems and can childhood cancers. The leading cause of death in children other than accidents is acute blastocytic leukemia. Which is a cause which is traced back to the lack of vegetables in the mother's diet, even before, even two years prior to pregnancy. What I'm saying right now is that what if we educated women about eating vegetables and green vegetables for folate? We would have a massive improvement in public health because we wouldn't just stop neural tube defects from folate insufficiencies. We'd also reduce childhood cancers, childhood infections, autoimmune diseases, and autism. Reduce diseases across the whole spectrum. Instead, we practice medicine like we have a person eating a junk food diet and they become diabetic. We just give them insulin so they yeah. can. Continue on their drugs. They can. We just give them blood pressure lowering medications. We don't get them off their diet. Their junky diet. It's the same thing with women in pregnancy. We give them a pill so they can eat unhealthfully, and that just leads to more problems. I don't. I'm not saying that um, a poor eater who's not eating any folate shouldn't take a supplement, but then they should use folate, not folic acid. But I'm. I am. But I'm saying it'd be much better if this person was taught to eat healthfully and not take a pill. Have you seen the movie uh, Game Changers? Yeah, sure. Well, what's your thoughts on it? Did you feel like it accurately described a vegan diet? Hmm. No. I mean, yeah, it's still a great movie, and I thought it was really important, but I think that, you know, it doesn't really, it didn't really describe a vegan diet, what to eat when you're an athlete. And you saw these athletes eating, you know, burger, you know, vegan burgers and vegan processed foods and vegan chicken wings, and I said, bleh. That's not a healthy diet. It's just because it's vegan doesn't make it healthy. Vegan junk food and processed food is just as bad. In other words, what I'm saying right now is that just because you're a vegan doesn't make your diet healthy. You gotta eat healthy foods if you're gonna eat vegan. It's even more important to watch what you're eating on a vegan diet. And those people in Game Changers were eating unhealthy food, unhealthy vegan food. They missed the whole point. The main reason what makes a vegan diet make you live longer is because you, because vegans generally eat more vegetables, particularly green vegetables. You know, when I say um, people don't like that answer, you know, they're looking for. You know, what I'm saying the major thing that prevents cancer is eating more vegetables. Yeah. They don't like that answer. They want a different answer. They want to like take a magic pill so they can smoke cigarettes and not get breast, not get lung cancer, or they can eat burgers and pizza and donuts and not get breast cancer. It's never. It's, it's not. Life is not a fairy tale. It's real, and you got to eat the vegetables if you want not to get cancer. The, so we're here talking about the same thing on a vegan diet. They got to eat the salad and the vegetables, the broccoli and the garlic and the bean vegetable soups. I didn't see that going on the game changer. I saw some really overweight, some like an overweight powerlifter with a big pot belly. You know. Overeating food to keep be strong, but that's not wasn't about health. Body weight, excess body weight, and all that extra that big pot belly is shortening his lifespan. For, in other words, the the the, the movie left a lot out. That was actually going to lead into my next topic. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, do you think health and uh, physical performance, as far as sports, are at a crossroads, or do you think it's possible to hit your peak level of physical performance while still prioritizing health? Whew, I'm not sure what that, I'm not quite sure what you're asking, but let me just say this. We're prior, prioritizing health and athletic longevity. By athletic longevity, look, I'm 66, right? I ski down moguls, I do singles tennis and I sprint, I do suicides and, and, and what are those called? And burpees and chin-ups and leg, leg lifts. I can do chins where I lift my feet up to my, over my head. In other words, I'm fit at 66. We want people like Tom Brady to be able to maintain his athletic ability as he gets to be 36, 40, 45, 50 and not deteriorate and age prematurely. We're not talking about, that's what I see it. I'm not doing the people, encouraging people to eat a nutritarian diet to make them run faster 
and jump higher and get stronger. They can do that on their regular kind of, they can do it on an old, on their meat-based diet. But they're going to burn out much faster on the other diet. They're not going to maintain that degree of athleticism and skill and agility as they age. You follow me? Yeah. It's prolonging their careers. It's what we're talking, prolonging their athletic career. I'm prolonging my athletic career. You know, I was in the world team in figure skating. I was third in the world in pair skating in my 1976. And I'm prolonging my athletic career because I love doing sports just because it's fun for me. I love bombing down the moguls and doing over jumps and going in the jump parks and, you know, I'm, I want to do stuff in my life. I want to still have fun in my life. I want to surf and play tennis and ski and do all these things. And so it's like, for me, it's like same thing why Tom Brady loves playing football. Let him do it if he's in great shape, takes good care of his health. And that's why the smartest, that's why a lot of smart athletes, including Kyrie Irving and, you know, LeBron James and all these guys. And look at um, Alonzo Mourning. You know who Alonzo Mourning is? Yeah, yeah. Okay. He had... He's uh, retired now, though. He's retired, but he had, when he was a player, he developed kidney disease, cutting short his career. He had severe kidney disease, and he followed my nutritarian approach. His doctor contacted me, and we, and he followed my approach, and his kidney disease got better, and he's pretty good health right now. And he got, That's amazing. Yeah, so he lost weight. You know, so we don't want to see these athletes quit their sports and continue and then put on more weight. You know, Do you we, know if he still follows the diet? I don't know particularly. He doesn't been in contact with me, but, he's, but I know he did back then. I'm thinking, you know, with the propensity for his kidney disease, I'm sure he probably knows about eating healthy and his doctor. He probably does. But in any case, look at Venus Williams. She left the tennis tour years ago with an autoimmune condition. She had Shokin syndrome. She followed a, something similar to a nutritarian diet, pretty much almost um, in direct line with my program, right? She got well, got back on the tennis tour again. Who's talking? Why aren't people talking about this? You know, the fact that these diseases reverse themselves. And in, in the famous, I'm just mentioning those famous people because I yeah. see that every day in my practice with people that are not famous. They recover from diseases through their diet, through this program, and they're able to get their health back and go back to doing their thing. And you're asking about athletic performance. And yes, we want people to maintain their youthful vitality and strength and athleticism so they can continue to live life and have a long play span. You know what I mean? Play yeah. span? Right. Okay. Well, oh, by the, I just said one more thing. The NASH study showed that linebackers on football team had the shortest lifespan of almost any profession because they were so big. They ate to get so large. And they compared their lifespan to the running backs and receivers who had normal lifespans. The thinner, leaner guys were sprinting up the sidelines, taking the passes, had, were okay. But the guys who were big and bulky and had to eat that so much food to get that big shortened lifespan. That's crazy. So it's, it's almost like there is a trade-off because you can't really be a slim linebacker. That's right. Yeah, there's a trade-off. You can't have great health and be a linebacker. It's very hard to be that big. That power lifter in the movie Game Changers, to eat the food he needed to consume to get that big is not good for his long-term health. Overeating shortens lifespan whether you're strong or you're not strong. Yeah. For a lot of, so my question prior, you said you didn't really understand it. Uh, for example, bodybuilders, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of, a common recommendation for bodybuilders is a gram of protein per pound of body weight. Right. And uh, it's really hard to do on a vegan diet. Yes, you have to, well, that's right. But don't forget, we're not trying to maximize size here. We're trying to maximize strength for size. In other words, use my body as an example. I weigh about 150 pounds. I want to maximize my strength at 150 pounds. That means I want to be able to bench, you know, 150 pounds. I want to be able to do 20 chins. I want to be able to, but I don't want to be able to, I don't want to get to be 180 pounds so I can lift more weight because this is my healthiest weight for my longevity at 150 pounds. I don't want to, I'd have to overeat and eat more meat to get to 180 pounds. You know what I mean? Even though yeah. I'd be stronger than I'd be able to bench more weight, it's not best for my long-term health. So these way of eating is probably best for basketball players and skiers and golfers and, and runners and basketball players, but not for linebackers and powerlifters are going, going to get that large. To get that large, you have to push the protein and push the food. And pushing the too much food and too much protein 
is not lifespan enhancing to get that to get overly large. So there is a trade off at that. Yeah, I think there is a trade off. Yeah, you, know, you can increase your protein in your diet on a vegan diet by eating more. You know, we give. I have a lot of athletes who I advise, and I give them Mediterranean pine nuts and hemp seeds and, and even some pea protein um, to increase their protein. And the pea protein is in powder, or yeah, the pea protein is in a powder, but the hemp seeds are are just real hemp seeds, and the, so we try to minimize the use of those supplements and maximize the use of the food, which is of course. Quinoa, green vegetables and beans and black beans and soybeans, not the not soy powders and soy weight. Um, those are an IGN and um, soy formulas and soy, soy powders, but real dried soybeans that you re, that you soak and you cook into a soup or a chili, and you give them black beans and navy beans and kidney beans and soybeans, and you get the protein up that way. But the secret ingredient here is the Mediterranean pine nuts, which are, are more which are very high in protein, over thirty percent protein. I never tried that. I have to try it now. Yeah, you got to get those. They taste great. So Mediterranean pine nuts and the hemp seeds with the beans and the greens, and then we can get the protein up from like 30 grams, 1,000 calories, about 40 grams, 1,000 calories. We can get up to that level, so we can 3,000 calories, there's still over 120 grams of protein a day, so pretty good levels on those. Do you have a personal recommendation for a protein? Well, it varies on a person's individual needs, you know what I mean? Um, but I was gonna say a percentage of calories. Um, well, like I said, it's about 30, it's about, um, 30 grams per 1,000 calories, so your protein needs are probably around 10% of total calories, but um, any haphazard diet even unless, unless you're eating too much fruit, because fruit is not under fruit is one to four percent protein, whereas you know vegetables and beans and greens are more like ten to twenty percent protein. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and beans, because beans have resistant starch, they're, 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 all their starches are not absorbable by the body, so their actual absorbable or available protein is even higher than you think. What I'm saying right now is, let's say the bean is thirty percent protein. Yeah. Added up based on a percent of total calories, right? But then when you consider ten percent of the starch is not absorbable, it's resistant to enzymatic degradation. That means that you're, so you're removing 10% of the calories off the top, and it's still 30% protein to the pump. So once you remove those 10%, the bean is closer to like 37% protein. So beans are really high-protein foods, and you want the protein to be not biologically... See, animal protein is biologically complete, so it's more growth-promoting. Yeah. That's what makes it more cancer-promoting. When the body takes the incomplete proteins and makes them biologically complete by, ma by maxing, because we store amino acids in the interstitial lining of the digestive tract, and also we could absorb some of the bacteria that lines the digestive tract to complete the proteins. Then the body will complete the protein it needs as it needs it. It won't overshoot the amount of completed protein, so it won't rev up the IGF-1 too high, just enough. What I'm saying right now is that you ratchet up your IGF-1, like you dial it right up as you eat more animal products. And as you go from 10 to 20 to 30 to 40 percent trying to gain weight and be bigger, you're, you're dialing up your IGF-1 into cancer-promoting levels. So we don't want to dial up protein from plants, from animal products, because it's too complete. If you want extra protein, go from it from plants, because then you can put up more protein needs and more, and more growth, but the, it will only produce enough muscle growth and growth hormone in amount that you demanded it to by the amount of exercise you did. It won't overshoot and make extra it doesn't need. It's the extra amounts you don't need that cause disease. It's like, using, it's like insulin. If you're eating a lot of sweets, you need more insulin. We want to use, if it want a type 1 diabetic, we want to use the minimum amount of insulin possible. It's the excess insulin they wouldn't have had, they don't need that's causing heart attacks and cancers. The excess IGF-1, the excess insulin, we want to minimize the, those hormones. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Is there any situation where you would uh, recommend animal products? Yes, of course. There can, is, can you name some? Yeah, some children, for example, may have failure to thrive on a diet where they're not eating enough volume to get enough um, where they're not growing adequately. We have to do for a person what's best, not hold some philosophical viewpoint to hurt somebody to hold to your philosophical I agree. I ideas. I agree. And, some, and some don't do well with that animal products. You know what I mean? Some people that are elderly start to, their IG-1 could drop too low. And even when you're trying to do nutritional gymnastics to put the protein up, 
they're getting they're getting a little bit of wasted and losing weight too much and getting muscle muscle wasting and so that could decrease their immune systems. So there are some people that require a small amount of animal product added to their diet. So yes, you have to always go with what's best for the person's health and don't hold some rigid idea that you're trying to adhere to. But th- then again, most people don't need to do that, especially when eating healthy. It's 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 on it's a very small minority where that would be necessary. You would say start off with a nutritarian diet and then adjust it accordingly as you go? Absolutely. Um, calcium. It seems, so I understand uh, uh, absorbable calcium in, in vegetables is lower than dairy. Is that wrong or right? It depends. You know, um, in some vegetables, it's pretty, it's high. Some of them have more phytic acid and more oxalic acid that binds calcium, you know, especially oxalic. So from spinach doesn't give you a good amount of calcium because there's so much oxalic acid, it binds it. But kale and bok choy does really, has a really good absorbable amount, even better than milk, you know, so it depends on the vegetable. Are you, is it, is it attainable to hit the recommended daily amount of calcium through a... Oh yeah, you get a lot of calcium through, through, vet, through plant foods, especially beans and greens and, you know, so calcium is not a limiting nutrient on a, on a vegan diet. It's not really, you don't really need milk for that. Where did the cow get the calcium from? You eat the green vegetables, you eat the grass, you know, so it's really plenty, plenty of calcium on a diet like this. Do you think the recommended values that uh, are accurate? No, I think the vita, the when you uh, the RDI for vitamin C of about sixty to one hundred um, milligrams a day is way too low. It prevents scurvy, but a healthy nutritarian diet gives you four hundred to six hundred milligrams of C a day. It's not a wasted. The body, you know what it is? Some of those levels are good to prevent disease, but they're not optimizing for later life health and stabilization of telomeres and stem cells. So when you're aging slower and your body's energies and immune system is winding down, you have stem cell activity and 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 power to keep you living long. What I'm saying right now is that the battery in the flashlight keeps its power when the flashlight's turned off. We want to save it so when we need it, right? So the body, using all these phytochemicals and antioxidants and enough extra nutrients are not wasted. It keeps, it stabilizes the body's immune system. It keeps the white blood and inflammation down. The white blood cells aren't excessively utilized. When you need them later on in life, you have them for their full activity to prevent pneumonia or some infection. So yes, I'm, so I'm saying that the extra vitamin C you're getting on this type of diet is beneficial to get this amount. The extra carotenoids and the extra phytochemicals and folates and all the things that we're getting on a diet with such a high level of natural plants, it's way above the RDA, but you're not wasting those nutrients. Those nutrients are still beneficial to your long-term health and longevity. I know you're uh, not an advocate of olive oil, correct? Absolutely correct. That's absolutely correct. Um, but some of the blue zones uh, take uh, vigorous amounts of olive oil. Uh, do you think they succeeded, what's the word, in spite, in spite of, of it, yes, as yes. opposed to because of it? Yes, exactly. What I'm saying right now is we look at each blue zone. And by the way, blue zones live maybe 10 years longer than the average American. They're not a nutritarian. They're not designed scientifically to extend lifespan. They don't live as long as nutritarians are going to live, most likely. I mean, you know, I've seen my, my, my recommendations are doing for people. It's, a much, it's scientifically designed to do much more than the blue zone, bringing the, part, the best parts of every blue zone, bringing the use nutritional science to the ideal diet style and then make it taste great. The blue zone just haphazardly happens to do it because that's the way those people are eating, which are better than more, most other people eat. You follow me? Yeah. So let's just say, for example, um, a little bit of olive oil when you're working eight hours behind an iron plow behind an ox each day when you're burning up all those calories and you're slim may not be so bad, but when you're an American working behind a computer on the butt all day who is 60 pounds overweight, the extra 500 calories you took from olive oil is fat on your body that's going to be inhib- inhibiting fat coming off your body and preventing you from losing weight. And let me say this clear, any extra fat on your body, especially over like 15% body fat, well, 15% for a male and 25% for a female, ideal body fat for male is probably 12.5% and for a woman below 22.5%, but nevertheless, what I'm saying is excess body fat is cancer promoting and lifespan shortening. 
fat cells are pathogenic. They spew out lipokines and cytokines, and they promote estrogen, extra estrogen production, which produces prostate and breast cancer, and they increase risk of diabetes, and they shorten your lifespan. So what I'm saying right now is that since nuts and seeds are so lifespan promoting, do you have enough caloric room to consume nuts and seeds and oil? Is soybean, is um, sunflower oil better than the whole soy, sunflower? Is pecan oil better than the pecans? Is olive oil better than the olive? We know that that's nonsense. Every nutritional scientist in the world will tell you that the whole nut or seed has been associated with higher, with lower rates of disease and increased lifespan, not the oil from those foods. You take out the sterols, the stanols, the terpenes, the tocopherols, you removed all the beneficial fibers and all the beneficial part of the food, and you think the oil's gonna be as healthy as the whole food, the way nature made it? So it's not a question of, the question is, we know that excess calories shortens lives, and the more you design your diet to be eat foods that are, have a higher nutrient density, so what's it going to be on your salad? Should I put pistachio nuts, a dressing with pistachio nuts and some sesame seeds? Or should I give you pistachio oil and sesame seed oil? There's nobody in the world who thinks that the oil is better than the whole food. You can't put both or you'll overexceed your calories. And what I'm saying right now, too, is that when you consume that oil and it rushes into your bloodstream so rapidly, which nuts and seeds don't, by the way, they go into slowly because the sterols, they release this, the fats very slowly. When you consume all that oil, it goes right to your fat store, from your lips to your hips in five minutes flat. And it stops lipolysis. You stop breaking down fat for energy. You're not going to lose weight. I'm saying olive oil is a contributor to breast cancer because women are, are the average of 60 pounds overweight and the excess olive oil they're putting on their food is a large contributor to their excess body weight. You have to be slim. Now, if you lived in a time and used a little bit of oil in a blue zone and you were exercising and working the field all day, and you weighed 120 pounds for a woman and 160 pounds for or less for a male, or most of those people in the blue zones are shorter anyway, they're, you know, they're weighing 130 pounds, then it would probably a little bit would be okay. But not when you're a 160-pound woman or a 210-pound male and you have a pot belly and you're pouring oil over your food and you think it's health food. That's just not logical. And how about uh, black coffee? Coffee can be addicting. It contains caffeine and in excess amounts it could promote, you know, it can promote irritation and even overeating because people get like headache withdrawal from it. They eat foods to relieve the headache because they don't want to go through withdrawal. So the answer is there's some phenols and beneficial parts of coffee that have some protective effects against diabetes and some beneficial effects. The overall answer would be um, probably for the American diet. It's probably adding some benefits because you're not really eating enough beans and greens. It gives you a little extra phenols, but a person already eating a healthy diet, there's probably no additional benefit you're going to get from adding coffee to it. So I personally don't drink coffee. I don't see a need to for health reasons. And it's probably if you don't drink it, you're better off not starting and just eating healthy food because coffee can, you know, coffee can become addicting. And the problem with it also, it enables people to get by with less sleep and feel okay. When it's really better to be in in connection with the amount of sleep you need and get the extra sleep you need not stay awake by, by keeping using a stimulant to keep yourself awake after you didn't get enough sleep at night. And uh, how about red wine? Well, there's no question that, that alcohol increases the risk of cancer. No question at all. Studies on red wine show that, um, that women who drink even one or two glasses a day still have a, a, um, about a 10 to 12% increased risk, of breast, increased risk of breast cancer. So... If you want to do something like that on a weekend with one or two glasses, but I wouldn't rec don't recommend that done, be done regularly. What do you think about the constant like news? Uh, there's always something new that's life extending, uh, and similar to the things I mentioned, olive oil is the new thing, or coffee, yeah, or yeah, uh, yeah. butter coffee, or red wine. You think they just uh, prey on sensationalism? Yeah, I mean, people don't really know enough. They don't really study nutrition to know the things that we've known for years and years and years now 
are that high glycemic processed foods like honey, maple syrup, sugary substances that drive up insulin, that don't contain nutrients and don't contain fiber, shorten lifespan, cause intravascular inflammation, increase the propensity of blood to clot, and even increase risk of cancer. That bagel you just had is cancer-causing. That bite of a cookie you just had is increasing risk of cancer. Don't eat processed carbohydrates. So we're not just talking about avoiding animal products and oil. We're talking about don't eat junk food. You're not getting away with it. You're paying a price for it. You just don't pay the price now. You pay the price when you're older, when you start to get sick and have to go to doctors. It's all that junk food, all those bagels you ate. There's no nutrients there. It's eating, there's no difference between eating a white flour bagel and eating a marshmallow. What if it's a whole grain bagel? Well, that's different. But even the whole grain bagels, a lot of them are made with like 60% white flour and they put whole grains and they call it whole grain. Yeah. You know, when you buy a commercial bagel on the street, it's not 100% sprouted whole grain. Like I know that brand I like is like the manna bread or the food for life, Ezekiel bread. They're like sprouted grains that are 100% grains. They're not finely ground. They're not a lot of salt in those. There's certain brands of bread I'm saying that are much healthier than other brands. Would you say the Ezekiel, Ezekiel Eze- bread? Yeah, it's called Food for Life Ezekiel. You know, I think you have to find them in the refrigerator. So in the freezer, right? in the freezer. frozen section of like the Whole Foods market and stuff. Yeah, yeah, I tried it or recently. Have you, this have you year. tried those breads? I don't know mm. if that particular brand, but I tried the the kind of bread. Yeah, it tastes yeah. pretty good too. It's right. You know, it's not going to taste like the mushy soft breads that people like, but you know, if you, it's still good. And, you know, and I use those wraps. You know, use the they all kinds of wraps and like pitas where you're using less bread. You can wrap vegetables and avocado and, you know, chop salad into a wrap and still have a really nice meal without eating huge amounts of bread with it. Yeah. Yeah. Is there any advice that you would give to someone uh, to, that's not so common, so everyone knows you should eat your, your vegetables, your G-bombs, and you should exercise and sleep a little. Is there any health-related uh, information or advice you would give to someone outside of, uh, outside of what they normally would hear? Yes. That they shouldn't be eating a heavy dinner and going to sleep on a full stomach. That when you eat late at night, you're shortening your lifespan. You want to have your big meal, you want to have a stack of calories earlier in the day, have a breakfast, have a nice lunch, have your lunch be a major, um, a major source of nutrients, have a big salad with a nut and seed based dressing and have a bowl of vegetable bean soup and a piece of some fruit. You can make this bowl of vegetable bean soup on the weekend and have it packed up for you, you know, in different containers for the whole week. You can make your salad dressing on the weekend, you know. The point I'm making right now is make your main healthy meal your lunch and then when you go back to eat dinner, Eat as early as you can and eat as light as you can. Give yourself three to five hours of no food coming in between the end of dinner and when you hit the bed at night to go to sleep. You want to go to bed on an empty stomach. That's the secret to a long life is don't eat late at night. Don't stuff your face late at night. Don't go to bed on a full stomach and lie down having food regurgitating up into your throat all night long. That's going to shorten your lifespan. So I'd say uh, you go to sleep at 10 p.m. I'm a little biased. That's exactly the time I go to bed. Right. What should your last meal be? Five or six o'clock. You don't eat after six. Got it. Uh, it's time restricted eating, right? Yeah, it's beneficial to you know have two or three meals a day, and and if you're having to eat later than that, then don't eat a lot of food. Eat some fruit or eat something light. Don't have a lot of food digesting and heavy food in your stomach at night. Interviews coming close to an end. I would like to know uh, the serving sizes for G bombs. When your recommendations, what would it be? You know, eat as big a salad as you can. Eat as much cooked uh, like frozen greens and cooked greens as you can. Make a big wok of like broccoli and, and water chestnuts and bamboo shoots and snow pea pods and, and, you know, and Chinese cabbage and mushrooms and have as much as you want because it's low-calorie stuff anyway. But when you're using the nuts and seeds, it depends on your body weight. If you're an overweight person, you want to limit that to a few ounces a day because they're 150, 75, 170 calories an ounce. You don't want to overdo nuts and seeds because of their calorie consumption. You want to overshoot your calories. Well, you but you definitely should have some. You definitely should have some because they facilitate the absorption of the phytochemicals because you want some fat in that high-nutrient meal because the fat increases the absorption of the fat-soluble phytonutrients, including the vitamin E fragments and the tertines. And the, you know, so a lot of these beneficial nutrients are absorbed 
without the salad dressing, without some nuts and seeds in the salad, you're going to waste a lot of those good nutrients. You know, so chew better, um, eat that big salad every day, eat large portions of a salad, and you know, eat large portions of these green vegetables that are really low in calories. And then when you're eating your starchy component, your quinoa, your sweet potato, your squash, your beans dishes, and your nuts, then you can eat a little smaller amount of that, but still go big on the greens and on the raw vegetables and on the green vegetables because the calories are low and the more you eat, the longer you live. How about mushrooms since it's always so hard? I've read studies that I even study people that eat just one mushroom. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And even 10 grams of mushrooms a day, the size of your thumb was shown in one study to lower risk of women's breast cancer by 64%, just a little bit of mushroom. Yeah, I didn't answer the question because you asked me before, what about people who don't like mushrooms? I didn't say, well, hide the mushroom in the food. Use a little bit of mushroom and whip it in there. They don't even know what's going to even be in there. You're not going to taste it in the dish. That's what I do. You know, I chop it up and mix yeah. it up with my beans. There's no way you could even know it's there. Yeah. You know, and then over time, you get to like it better and you can add more and more. And how about onions? Same thing. I didn't even like onions when I was younger. And then I didn't even know that they were so anti, so powerfully fighting against cancer. And I started adding little bits of raw onion and I started liking it more and more. Now, I like, now I'll, put like, I'll put raw onion and raw scallion on my dishes, on my cooked vegetable dishes with some thickened tomato sauce, with soaked sun-dried tomatoes. You know what I'll do? I'll take the sun-dried tomatoes and I'll soak them in my tomato sauce bottle so they get soft and mushy. And then I'll chop them in the salad. I'll put them on sandwiches and wraps and, I'll put, and then I'll put the um, you know, the mushrooms, what are we talking about? Sprouts, whatever it is, your microgreens, whatever, you know, put them, put them right in there with the sun-dried tomatoes, you know, um, to make, make grapes, to bring out incredible flavor. That sounds delicious. Yeah. Um, where can people learn more about you, uh, Dr. Furman? DrFurman.com. D-R-F-U-H-R-M-A-N.com. And your book will be available for pre-order um, in February? Yeah, well, mid-January, they'll probably be ordered on Amazon. I hope people pre-order it. They'll get a special Zoom conference with me if they pre-order it. The reason why pre-orders... Everyone that pre-orders gets a Zoom conference? Yes, they get to join a Zoom conference for the pre-orders. Okay, okay. That's pretty huge. Yes, we want to give them something because it's such a, so much of a benefit of me as the author for the pre-orders because when the book gets a lot of pre-orders, then more bookstores carry it and they position it better in the bookstores and you have a much higher risk of, of high, higher chance of getting on the New York Times bestseller list. So the pre-orders are really important. So we want people, a lot of people to buy the book before it hits the market and the wait so they know like 10,000 already ordered before it even came out. So get that book, Eat I'm for a- Life. I'll definitely be pre-ordering. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much, and uh, Mm -hmm. I appreciate you stopping by. My pleasure. Best of health to you, of course, and all your listeners. Thank you. Real quick, if you like the podcast episode, you can help us out by rating us five stars. Just head to wherever you listen to podcasts. Give us a nice five-star review. It helps us rank, and it helps us promote the podcast to more people. That's a great way to share the message. We always appreciate your help and support. Thank you.